Thank you, Keith. And uh, we thank God that the air came back on, too. I was, I was dusting off my best hell, hell class so we'd get some, get some repentances before the day was out. It could work. Um, we are uh, finishing up here either this week or next week, knowing our pace, probably next week, our study of Christian community. What is it like to connect together an authentic, genuine uh, Christian community, dialoguing with a book uh, called Life Together by Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Um, in a couple of weeks, we will kick off and do a little experiment with you guys. One of the things that we recognized in this, uh, in, in several churches, what, what they do that is helpful to folks is, is map out what it looks like in a particular Christian community to take some steps to grow deeper in your walk with Jesus. I mean, that's why we're here, because we don't just kind of want to, you know, kind of stay on the treadmill. We want to go deeper. We want to experience more grace, more love, more power, more ability to serve and change the world. And, uh, and, and we realize in this church, when people come and they're new, we have this class called Starting Point. It gets you going and lets you know what's going on in the ministries of the church. But sometimes we kind of just leave off there. Uh, one of the places that I, I've uh, done some study in, uh, as part of a, a discipleship learning community recently is a, uh, is a great, I was going to say little church, but it's not, uh, over in uh, Murfreesboro called the Experience Community Church. Pre-COVID, 6,000. They started with six, I think. Not that I care about numbers, but they, they take discipleship really seriously. But one of the things they do, I thought was beautiful, in addition to their starting point class, they have a couple other classes that, that help people keep just kind of, this is what it looks like to grow in this faith community. And so I'm in the process of developing a couple follow-up classes to our starting point. Uh, one is enter God's story. What does it look like to live out the story of God in our everyday life? And then after that, uh, a basic discipleship class on following Jesus. And so the thought is eventually we'll invite people to starting point and then we'll have these classes running on a, a consistent basis. What I'd like to do is use y'all as guinea pigs for those classes. So after this one's over, we're going to do a seven-week class on entering the story of God. And we'll show you how that fits into a kind of a discipleship pathway that we've laid out for adult spiritual life. So that's what's coming next. That's the plan. So we'll start off with the Trinity. Uh, all great confessions of faith started with the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. So we'll start that class off uh, by literally entering the, into the story of God. And I think it'll be exciting, and you can help refine that as we go forward to the future. So that's where we're going next, but we need to finish up what we're doing here. So uh, remind you, we're finishing the, the last class. I started with this picture that I learned from a friend of mine that was uh, uh, helping teach me how to coach. And one of the things he said is, have your, have your uh, players all take the same knee. You say, take a knee, take the same knee, and impress upon them from the very first time you gather together that in football, and I would add in life, details matter. So that's why you're doing it, not to be a jerk or anything like that, but to show them from the very beginning, if you pay attention to details now, it will pay off later. And so we've gotten to that section of the book where Bonhoeffer, I think, is talking about those details of the Christian life that may bless us more than we would know. It seems like some small topics, but I, I, I want to look at the one that he talks about today. We'll, we'll get to the specific topic in a moment. Here's the way I want to think about it. All right, I want to take the camera lens way, way back and think about very big picture of what this spiritual community represents right here. Think very, very big picture. Here's the thing. About 500 years ago, there were followers of Jesus that recognized that the church as it existed at that time Unlike the way we say, it wasn't completely evil or horrible, but it was broken and, and deeply in need of the Holy Spirit of God to come and bring revival and reform. And so 
we have followers of Jesus that God raised up to initiate what we now know as what started 500 years ago in Christianity. Does anybody remember? Anybody? Yes, the, the, the Reformation, but it's not just the Reformation. The first word is what I want you to think about that's very important. What do we call it? Not just the Reformation, the... Thank you. Oh, the, in fact, I'm going to put the mic for Bradford because the way he said this is really important. What, what kind of Reformation? The Protestant. The Protestant Reformation. I want you to think about this. We find ourselves in a heritage that was born in protest. It's really important, big picture view, to know where you came from. Now, that was 500 years ago. Our movement in Christian churches, Disciples of Christ, and Churches of Christ started with a guy named Alexander Campbell, another named Barton Stone. I'll give you a sense of this. Now, if I put you to sleep with history stuff, I'll, you know, we'll get back to Scripture soon and I'll wake you up. But I want you to think about this. It's really important. Alexander Campbell had a right-hand man named Walter Scott. His right-hand man, Alexander Campbell. Walter Scott. When Walter Scott wrote, it was common in that, in the 1800s, it was common to write under a, a pen name. Boy, you get huge extra credit if you know the pen name of Walter Scott. I don't imagine anybody would. It was a teacher that taught me this and stuck with me. Anybody know what Walter Scott's pen name was? I think I'm pronouncing this rightly. Philip Melanchthon was his name. Does anybody know the significance of this guy? He was... Martin Luther's right-hand man. I want you to think about this. Sounds boring, but this is really important for where you sit today. So 300 years after Luther and others initiated the, the Protestant Reformation, our movement started with a very conscious image that we are continuing the Protestant Reformation. Do you understand? And so if you read Campbell's writings, he would say, I praise God for what Luther and Zwingli and all these other folks did, and we are seeing ourselves as a continuation of the Reformation, and, and we were, can we say, maybe a little arrogant to call it the Restoration Movement. We got it done. Okay, not everybody felt that way, but we're stepping into the line of that very consciously. Does that make sense? By the way, we find ourselves now in a church where... I, I take a little pride sometimes when I talk to people and they find out from I'm from a church of Christ and I very quickly say, now we're not your daddy's church of Christ. We're a little different here, aren't we? Because this church has consciously, and I think praise God for it, continued trying to stand in that movement of God's restoration and reformation because we all recognize the church is always a little bit broken. Does that make sense? Now here's what I want you to feel for a moment. You are sitting in a heritage with 500 years of Protestant DNA. <laughs> we were born in protest. Is that good? Yes. We're born in not accepting the status quo as, okay, just the way it is. We're always trying to grow and grow and all that. Now, here's, here's a, a principle I learned a long time ago. With every gift, there's also a shadow side. Every gift that we have is also an opportunity to stumble. And before we even get into to Bonhoeffer's theme, you might begin thinking about what would be maybe a potential stumbling block to a group of people that were born in protest. <laughs> what might we struggle with? You can answer, you can think about it. Here's the thing. In the book, we come to this section 
for Bonhoeffer calls, and I've set it up for if I started this way, it might not, maybe it might not hit you with the significance. I'm hoping you see the significance in our heritage. Here's the ministry. This is a take a knee kind of thing. This is a detail kind of thing. Bonhoeffer says we need to talk about the ministry of authority. We need to talk about the ministry of authority. I will tell you, as someone who, who very, very is pr proud of my heritage growing up in a Protestant Reformation, growing up in the Restoration Movement of church, I never heard about the ministry of authority when I was a kid. I just didn't. Um, another place you might think about this, I remember when I got what is now a Christian classic, The Celebration of Discipline by Richard Foster. Has anybody read this book, had this book, or at least thought about reading this book? It has, a, it has a group of different spiritual disciplines. There's an entire chapter on the discipline of submission. Never heard about that before. But what I'm telling you is you're literally sitting in a room where if we want to deal with the shadow side of our history and past, it's probably a good idea to listen to the voices in spiritual discipline, the Richard Fosters of the world, or the people in Christian history, Dietrich Bonhoeffers of the world, to listen to the practice of submission in our lives. It may be the little detail, the little take a knee moment that might set you free from some of the biggest stumbling blocks of your life. Significant? All right, let's think about it. I want to, I want to go to a passage. This is just one verse, and then we'll look at an illustration of that uh, in the Old Testament. But if you have your Bibles or your devices, look with me to Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17. We're in a section of the book of Hebrews where uh, most scholars think the book of Hebrews is a sermon. So if you think that... Uh, that I teach long, or Dave or anybody ever preaches long, go read the book of Hebrews and thank God that you don't have that as a sermon. Okay, it's a beautiful book, but it was actually a sermon. It was a homily. And we're getting to the section where he's throwing out some of these little details, some of these applications. He's set up the vision all along, and then he's saying some things almost as he wraps up his sermon about that spiritual community. And I want to read this. Hebrews 13, verse 17. Have confidence in your leaders and what? Submit to their authority because they keep watch over you as those who must give an account. Do this so that their work will be a joy, not a burden, for that would be of no benefit to you. Let me read that again. And I just, again, I know it's just one verse. But can we talk about this a little bit? I, again, if you're like me, I didn't do a lot. Maybe you came from a different heritage or, or a different church emphasis. I didn't read passages like this very much. Have confidence in your leaders and submit to their authority because they keep watch over you as of those who must give an account. Do this so that their work will be a joy, not a burden, for that would be of no benefit, not just to them, but to you. Any thoughts or reflections on, on this brief, but I think very powerful passage? Any thoughts? What is God telling us as a spiritual community? This is a detailed moment. I know it's a big room, but I, I, I always like to rem remind you every month or two. I've, I've taught college students, so I can wait you out. passing off to you. Yeah, I, I just will say this is um, when when the shepherds get together 
uh, and, and we're trying to make a decision about something spiritual, a lot of times this phrase is said, we're going to be held accountable for this. Mm-hmm. And, and we're not talking about the accountability that we have to you all, but, right. but also we're going to be accountable to God. Yes. Yeah. And, and when we think of the, that in those terms, which is true, that's what the Bible tells us, it's a huge burden that sure we feel. Is. Yeah. Yeah, and isn't that interesting? So part of what the Hebrew writer is telling us, look, those who are called to lead in our spiritual community, our shepherds here, those are called, they already have a burden of leadership. By the way, this is true in any sphere of life, right? Leaders, leadership, especially the higher you get up the ladder or the lower you get down the ladder in terms of service, right? Um, as you grow in leadership, it becomes a more lonely and lonely and lonely existence. Why? Because you're feeling the weight and the burden of that calling to leadership. There is a natural burden, not, not an overwhelming, hopefully, not an overwhelming, sometimes it feels that way, but there's a natural burden that comes in leadership. Paul would talk about, um, pray for me on a regular basis, he says, I forget which, I, I want to say it's Philippians, he said, I have this daily concern for the churches. So Paul is not just uh, pastorally uh, shepherding one congregation. He has an apostolic, extra-local ministry over many of them. And when he's thinking about them, he's praying for them, he has a weight to his leadership in that place. And he will talk about, same thing you did, Keith, he will say, look, I don't want to have run my race in vain. I know I'm standing before the Lord God. Again, you guys are saved. You're not going to hell because you have bad leadership. But God is going to say, what did you do with the leadership responsibility and the opportunity you had? There's enough of a burden of this. I want to say this is one of the passages in my experience of church life, especially in Protestant churches, that is the most violated passage in Scripture, one of them. Now, I'm not throwing this for guilt. I'm just saying this is one that's often neglected. Can we put it center stage for a moment and say, I continually want to grow, and I said this to some of our shepherds uh, last Tuesday, we had the opportunity just to be together with shepherds and, and your ministry team here, and we were speaking blessings over our shepherds. I'm just thinking about the time in which our shepherds have served in this last year. They've been through some things, yes? And now we all have. And, and one of the things I, I, I said to them, and not all of them were there, so I'll say it again uh, to you all uh, about them. One of the things I appreciate so much about our shepherds right now is they have served us well in the last year in a time when the entire world makes any leadership a burden and not a joy, right? You guys have done that. Thank God for you. Thank God for your leadership. Thank God for what you all have been doing for us. And I want to present this to our, our church here to say, can we live this passage out? Again, I didn't, I didn't write this, didn't, didn't plan it. It came up in the book, but I think it's a really important one. There is a ministry. Do you hear this? There is a service of authority in a church, and that is both the, the ones leading in their authority, and there are also those who are responding. Now, that doesn't mean you never question authority. doesn't mean you don't challenge it or whatever, but what can we put this maybe on our, our walls as we walk out? Can we make our shepherd's service a joy? and not a burden. That's part of our responsibility and ministry that we do in the church. Everybody here is a minister, and one of our ministries is that whoever is exercising leadership in any area of our lives, so if you're going down, you're doing some stuff with student ministry, you have student leaders there. I mean, uh, you have uh, student ministry leaders there, right? So Nikki and Evan, what would it look like to consciously, prayerfully make their ministry and leadership in that ministry a joy and not a burden? Just, just an interesting practice that it challenges us here. Uh, other thoughts for that? Thank you, Keith. 
Yes. To me, it I, looks like service all over that. Yes. Um, an act of prayer and an act of asking what needs are. Yes. It, so it, we it, act as the service workers to the authority of like the children's ministry or here or wherever. So having that servant heart um, would be a, a joyful thing to those in authority, I would think. Yeah. So just to uh, for us to remember that. Absolutely, absolutely. I know you guys have heard this before. I, I mentioned a couple of weeks ago in terms of a, a discipline that some that, that are um, gifted with evangelism in my life have talked about a lot, that, that many, many folks, many Christians make it a practice when they sit down at a restaurant and they're about to be served by someone, that, that a beautiful thing that you could do for your service is to say, hey, by the way, in, in a minute we're going to pray. Is there anything we can pray for you about? Now, why is that particularly beautiful? First of all, you're not shoving something down their throat. You're not, like, pulling them aside and, and making them, like, confess and repent and be baptized in the middle of their job. But you're giving a witness to Jesus. But also, here's what I love. It's flipping the whole, the whole relationship on its head. Why is that person there in that moment transactionally in our culture? They're there to serve me. What would it look like if you came in and said, well, I'm going to serve the servant? Now, we have built up an expectation in part because they have taken on the responsibility of themselves, but everybody in here is in a flock if you're part of this church, and that means your shepherds are praying for you on a regular basis. They're checking up on you from time to time. What would it look like to like out-shepherd your shepherds? I'm just throwing it I'm just dreaming just off of what you just said. What if you asked your shepherds how they're doing and what you can pray for them about? What if we did? And then we had this beautiful like battle not to take the center stage, but battle for service. What if we, what if we look like Jesus, who in his leadership... Uh, an authoritative moment. The greatest picture of God's authority in Scripture is John 13. And he said, look, all authority heaven's earth is given to me. He says that elsewhere. He said, I'm about to finish. I've done it all. And by the way, here's what I want you to do. And then he wrapped a towel around his waist and washed, washed their feet. What if, we, what if we made that our practice here? Beautiful, Kimberly. I love that. Yes, Ken. just two words that come to my mind uh, when I read through that. The first is trust. Um, we have to trust. It involves humility. It involves submission. But we do that easily when we can trust. So how do we work on trusting? Uh, and the second one that comes to my mind is attitude. Uh, I, I speak it every day. My attitude controls what type of day I'm going to have. How I perceive leadership will be my attitude. How I perceive my fellow man is attitude. And if it's crummy, it's probably not them. It's probably me. <laughs> so what is it about me that creates a negative attitude? Because when I'm doing well, if you step on my toe, all you do is step on my toe. Right. But when I'm doing poorly, they're against me. They're doing bad things. Right. Why are they doing bad things? I can't believe they were doing bad things. Thoughts. Very, very powerful, isn't it? And, and one of the things I would encourage, I love that. So how do we develop trust and leadership, interact, connect, reach out? Don't assume. I mean, this is enormous. I had a, a, a good friend of mine come, and we had an interaction. And one of the most beautiful things he did with me is he owned the fact that he had made some assumptions, and the assumptions were wrong. 
This is huge, right? So sometimes the problem that I can have, this is not just with leadership, this is any tension that you might have. Sometimes I got issues and I need to step back and say, hold on, is that reality? Or is that an assumption that I'm putting on another human being and never gave them the opportunity to work through that? Right? Very powerful. Thank you, Ken. Let, let me, as we're dialing on, dialoguing here, I want to think about an Old Testament example. Now, this is on the extreme. Sometimes your trust relationship is so high, it is almost effortless to submit to leadership. I love the men that, that I have the honor of, of submitting in leadership to here. makes it easier. But it's not always easy to submit to godly, God-appointed leadership. And this is perhaps, again, a fairly extreme example, but uh, I think it's an important one we can learn from. So, again, if you have your Bibles, your devices, look at 1 Samuel 24. 1 Samuel 24. Now we'll read the first seven verses. Now remember the context of this. We're stepping into David's life. Um, some years before, I can't remember how long it is into this process, but David had been anointed by God and God's prophet to be the king. So don't, don't miss that. This is really important. God himself said, you're going to be the guy sitting on the throne, not the guy who's presently on the throne because God says he's fallen out of favor with me and I'm going to deal with him. Um, God, the time it took between David's anointing as being the king to him actually sitting on the throne as king is, I don't know, 15 years. <laughs> so it is interesting to me how David conducts himself in the 15 years from the time he was called to be the king to the time he actually practiced life as a king. And here is one of those moments. 1 Samuel 24. After Saul, who was the existing king, returned from pursuing the Philistines, he was told, David is in the desert of En Gedi. So Saul took 3,000 able young men from all of Israel and set out to look for David and his men near the crags of the wild goats. Pause here. If you don't remember this part of the story, David ends up serving in Saul's court, and Saul gets incredibly jealous and fearful of, his, of David's successes in leadership. Now, David has done nothing to undermine his uh, authority, even though he's been anointed by God. But they begin singing the songs. Everyone remember this? Saul has, by the way, what a, what a gruesome song. But they go around singing, Saul has killed his thousands, David his tens of thousands. Which in that culture is not a compliment to your existing king, right? So David doesn't stir this up. He doesn't do anything to stir the pot. But there is some, wow, we like David's leadership. And then, so Saul takes a very healthy approach to his fears. He decides to kill David, right? That's a great way to, <laughs> to respond to your leadership fears. So this is what he's doing. Pick up again in verse 3. He came to the sheep pens along the way, and a cave was there, and Saul went in to relieve himself. you got to love the Old Testament. David his men were far back in the cave. And the men said, This is the day the Lord spoke of when he said, I will give your enemy into your hands for you to deal with as you wish. So apparently somebody had experienced a prophetic word. God says, I'm going to deal with your enemy. And David crept up unnoticed and cut off a corner of Saul's robe. Afterward, David was conscience-stricken for having cut off a corner of his robe. And he said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, or lay my hand on him, for he is the anointed of the Lord. And with these words, David sharply rebuked his men and did not allow them to attack Saul. And Saul left the cave and went on his way. Wow. What do you learn here from David's understanding of leadership and anointing and all that? What, what do you learn here? Anything at all? What grabs you? 
second. I just noticed that, uh, you know, David was remorseful for even just cutting part of his robe. Just by even doing that. Yeah. When he, you know, told his men not to, not to attack him. So, you know, thank God, you know, spoke to him right then, you know. Isn't that powerful? And one of the things that you notice when, when you read through the Psalms is that David is in such a close connection most of the time. He's not a perfect guy, and he obviously has some, some epic failures as well. But he's walking with God enough to have this conversational connection with God. And so when he's going the right direction, he feels the affirmation of God. Sometimes I think somebody talked about this a couple weeks ago, in, even in his battles... He, he had this sense, God, am I supposed to go here? Am I supposed to go here? And he has that sense. And he has this conviction when he went the wrong direction. Now, can you imagine this spirit in today's culture? What an incredible Christian witness. Again, this isn't just with spiritual leadership. This is with any leadership. He is convicted not only that he didn't, like, like he, he, you know, knifed him or hurt him or something like that. He cut, he cut his clothing and he's convicted of that because why? This is the Lord's anointed. God has put him in this position and he is trusting God will remove him because God, God has already said, I'm going to deal with it. But he said, I'm going to deal with it. Not you, David. And he is so convicted that he cut the corner of his robe. What if this story were sitting right next to our computers before we posted anything, emailed anything, or texted anything to a leader or a person with whom we disagree? Again, this doesn't mean you don't stand up. I'll show you in a moment. David is not a doormat here either, but he is respectful of the authority that God has put into his life. And we are living in a culture where we are increasingly disrespectful of authority. And I go to this passage because apparently in Scripture, it is not a justification when your leader is corrupt and horrible. Again, doesn't mean that you just do everything they say or that you like the person or whatever. But there is some respect for the leadership position in and of itself, whether or not that leader even deserves it. I would tend to think that the king of the Lord's people trying to kill God's next anointed king is probably not a good sign of his character. And yet, David says, I'm going to submit to the Lord's anointed and I'm convicted when I, when I strike out against him. Yes, Josh. Powerful story. Convicting him. I think it's also interesting looking at David as a leader here, even though he's submitting to the authority mm -hmm. of Saul. I feel like this is the picture of why we need leaders, in that we tend to be opportunistic with the application yeah. of Scripture, right? Like yeah. do here, right? Yeah. And I say this is the opportunity God's given us, and David steps up and he makes the hard decision. While it would be easy for him to make the call to say, "Yes, I'm going to say this is the time." Yeah. He feels the check in his spirit to say, the wisdom that the Lord has given me says, mm. no, this is not the time. So good. Job. And so we need leaders who are willing to step into that hard wisdom yeah. to say, this is not the time for this. Oh, and in being good followers, we have to take that and say, okay, I was wrong. Let's move on and we'll apply it in this right time. Wow. So powerful, right? In fact, think about what Josh is saying. David has... Biblical, so to speak, authority maybe to do what his his band of you know mercenaries wants to do, which is overthrow him. Right? What does David have in his life? 
Number one, he's got the actual word of God, the anointed word of God that says you're going to be the king. He's apparently got a prophetic word from God that says he's not going to be and I'm going to take him out. And how many times have we had this? Like he ends up in the same cave, completely vulnerable here to David and his men. Wouldn't it be really easy with two solid words from God and now this coincidence to say, I don't believe in coincidences, the Lord has brought him to us. And David still says, I'm going to discern that. I got a word from God, but I'm going to discern timing on this. A couple things really important. I've said this before. When God directs, he doesn't just give you a what, he will give you a when. And sometimes we will miss out on the guidance of God, not because we're doing the wrong thing, but we're doing it at the wrong time. So David says, I'm going to discern on that, right? Also, he's demonstrating, I think, a very, very important principle of discernment. Be very wary to take a word from God and act on it when it feels completely self-serving. Now, there may be a time that the self-serving thing is the right thing, but I think David has enough spiritual maturity to say, man, this feels like it's really easy for me. It really will work out for me if I take this opportunity. Maybe I need to put that one more time before the Lord and see, is this really the way you're leading? And God says, no, that's not what I want. Incredibly mature discernment in this moment. And I am so delighted to say, Gene, what would you like to say? Yes, sir. Anytime. Yes. I'm always looking for attributes of God. The way, the way you spoke of time a while ago, 15 years that David... Before he, when he was anointed until he got to work in yeah. But I like the way that God uses time. He can use no time or eternal time. Right. Or he can use 15 years of our time. We think of it as a long time. Right. right. No, he, he doesn't. That's just, we're, we're in for a big shock of yeah. no time yeah. when we step over to eternal time. Yeah, no question, right? You can testify 15 years isn't that long, is it, Gene? No, it's not. <laughs> Thank you, brother. David? What, what struck me on that is that he believed that if it wasn't that time, there would be another time. Yes, yes. That, that's what stuck out to me. It's like, okay, I'm going to discern this. If I don't do it now... He said he was going to do it. This must not be the right time. If I don't do it now, another opportunity will come because I trust God and I believe what he tells me. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So, again, part of the, this, and I really want to emphasize that this is not David being a doormat. This is not David saying, okay, he's a corrupt leader, so I'll just do whatever he says. I'll just go with it. No, he trusts in the word God already gave him. I am anointing you. You're going to be king, and I will deal with who knows what he would have done if God hadn't given him? Like sometimes we are given the freedom to decide what seems right. In this time, he felt like God had guided him. I'm going to anoint you and I will deal with Saul. And when David, God says, I'm going to deal with Saul, God says, uh, David says, all right, I'm going to do it. Is Ron back there? Can't see. Yeah, thank you. You know, Dean, I was, a lot of great comments. Uh, I was, one thing I was thinking about was um, that maybe this isn't really about leadership. Maybe this is about relationships mm. and how God uh, tells us how it works when we're all in community and we all love each other and we're in the body of Christ. Yeah. And I, I like what Ken said about trust. And I think it, he, I, I think about how the Bible describes for us how we should love our spouses. And when we do it the way he tells us to do it, it just works. 
And I think this is one of those examples of a principle that when we follow it, it just works. And when I try to do it my way, and I try to say this is the way leaders should lead, and this is what I, how I, then I, I mess it up. But when I just trust in God and I follow the principle that he's outlining, I figure out it all, it just works. Yes, so powerful, so powerful. And, and again, remember that it doesn't mean there isn't a time to speak. So we've talked about this. Let me, let me jump down to verse 12, all right? So same chapter, look at verse 12. This doesn't mean there isn't a time to speak truth. This is the classic language of prophetic activity, to speak truth to corrupt power, right? So this is what David does after he creates some distance, lets him go. In verse 12, it says, he's speaking to Saul. David's speaking to Saul. May the Lord judge between you and me. And may the Lord avenge the wrongs you have done to me. But my hand will not touch you. As the old saying goes, from evildoers come evil deeds, so my hand will not touch you. David says, and remember, think about the New Testament passage. It is unhelpful, it says, to you not to submit to your authority. Hear that? It is unhelpful to you. You're not just doing it to make their life great. It is helpful to you. It's one little passage in Scripture, but I'm telling you, this is one of those take-a-knee moments. There's deep stuff going on in the spiritual practice of submission. David says, I don't want to be the guy who takes matters into my own hands and acts out evilly because it will change who I am, even though you deserve it. He basically says that, right? Keep going. Uh, Against whom has the king of Israel come out? Who are you pursuing? A dog? A flea? May the Lord be our judge and decide between us. May he consider my cause and uphold it. May he vindicate me by delivering me from your hand. So David doesn't say, okay, cool, go be on your way and keep trying to kill me. It's all good. (laughs) He's saying, first of all, I'm going to make decisions about who God has called me to be no matter what you do. Number one. Number two, he is able to say, all right, God, you see what's going on. Would you deal with this? And God does. By the way, there, there comes, I think it's in this, it's either, you know, there's two times David uh, spares his life. And in one of those encounters, I, I consider it one of the most tragic moments in Scripture. There's a couple of them. Uh, one is when, when Samson doesn't know the Spirit of the Lord had left him. It's tragic. Here's the other one. I think it's incredibly tragic. Saul says to David, I know you're going to be king. I know it's going to be you. And yet he can't stop trying to hold on to his power and kill him. Isn't that tragic? Like Saul recognizes in this clarity of moment, God is all over you. He's not working with me anymore. And yet he desperately clings to power. That's a scary place to be. And David says, you know what? I'm not getting in the mix of any of that. I'm going to be the man God called me to be. I'm going to trust the word that he gave, as David said, to work it out. And God does at the end. And David preserves that in honor. And again, this is an extreme example, (laughs) right? What does it look like in a community here where our shepherds, and they'll be the first ones to tell you, are imperfect? do Do you guys get it right every time? But when they get together and they pray, they're praying and they are calling out to God to direct them and they're recognizing their accountability for the actions they're making, how much more, this is a Pauline argument in Romans, how much more should it be easier for us to say, okay, far be it for us to lift our mouth or our hands against the Lord's anointed in this church. I'm just, 
You know, we don't do this very much, but I'm telling you, this is where the book took us and where Scripture takes us. Can we put it out there and say, and I'm just going to say it as, as one of the ministers here, I, one of my greatest goals in this church is to make your service a joy. And I'm quite certain I don't do it all the time. Look at Brant, and I've done crazy things sometimes or tried to have an event and wasn't the right thing to do and all that. But you know what? We work it out and we love each other. I, my goal as a, as a servant of this church is to make your service a joy. And I know I'm doing that all the time, but I'm trying. And, and what if we made that our goal as sheep of the, of the flock here to make their service a joy? And I'm praying that God is working on the hearts of our shepherds here to make, to make their sense more like David's heart. I want to be men after God's own heart, and I'm going to try to serve this church in that way. I think they are. Does that make sense? How much different does the community feel when there's that level of hopefully developing trust? including speaking truth. Our shepherds go in a direction they shouldn't be going. They will be the first ones to say, would you please come talk to who? Them. Not everybody else in cutting off the edge of the cloak, right? Just a thought in, in, uh, in how to apply this. Um, yes. Yeah. One, one second. Well, let me, I'll, I'll, get, I'll get there, Pastor Keith. You won't make his friend. I think a lot of times we forget that these men are called by God, these elders, and uh, that they pray seriously uh, before they take that office. And just as David knew Saul was anointed, I think we need to remember that these men that lead our church are anointed by God and that they, they do have to stand account. But I think a lot of times we feel that they are put in by men. You know, we all go through that process of bringing el new elders in or new shepherds in. But it's actually God brings those men to us. Just as we are praying for a minister right now, and we know God has a minister in mind for our church, these men are brought by God to lead our church. And we need to remember that. And sometimes we don't give them that grace. Amen. That's right. Uh, by the way, this is a posture for any leadership. So can we be praying already that we're going to do the same thing for whoever God leads as, as the lead minister of this church? We're going to make their service a joy, too. I'm just telling you, I've sat in the seat of, of being a minister at church, in, in Churches of Christ for a long time. And one of the things that grieves my heart, again, this is not so much here, but I'm just saying it grieves my heart that people will take a volunteer position to serve as a shepherd in church, and then they become the complaint department church. I'm just telling you, this is the reality. Um, over the course of all the years I've been in ministry, people will tend to treat their shepherds in a church like a complaint department. Now, if I'm talking just to my shepherds, you, you train them how to treat you. So there's some responsibility on y'all not to create an atmosphere of appeasement. That's a subject of another time. For us, it, part of our submission authority, that again, it doesn't mean we don't speak truth to those in authority. But they're not, they're not the Walmart complaint department. So can we step out of consumer church models for a while and recognize a different form of leadership? You think it's something, Jeff? Or you move, Careful, if you raise your finger, that looks like raising your hand. Um, uh, a couple things I, I jot down here I want to share. There, there is, a, again, a spiritual discipline and practice of submission to authority. This is not robotic. This is not mind control. This is not cult stuff. In areas, again, everywhere in Scripture that talks about leadership and submission to leadership, it will always qualify in the Lord. 
right? Always. If they're leading in a way that is against your calling in God, you, you have to stand up against it, right? Um, I'm sure I probably told this story before, but one of my... One of my favorite examples of submission to authority, because it was very different than I grew up in. Here's the thing. I grew up thinking the only way I could submit to a decision of the leadership is if they were either as conservative in their decision or more so than me. You should think about this. This sounds complicated, but they make a decision, and I'm like, okay, I can follow that because I agree with their decision. I might do more than they would do, but at least I'll do what they do. And You see what I'm saying? All right. Maybe it'll be more clear when I give the example. We moved to Lubbock, Texas, and uh, I became the, the campus minister there. We had about 300 college students. It was a thriving ministry, but we wanted to grow leadership deeper. And so, you know, it was a kind of the, the big event, and my focus was on discipleship. And so we wanted to disciple everybody, guys and the ladies, and so we immediately um, raised up some of our ladies to disciple the ladies. My wife has obviously did a great job at that. Uh, and so we would give women opportunities to speak and share and serve in ways that, you know, like our church does here, but wasn't... It, back then, it wasn't quite as common as it is now, or even in college ministries. Make sense? And my friend Wes, and that is his name because I want to I celebrate something he taught me. I, my friend Wes went on to be a lawyer, and so you kind of picture this guy. Brilliant, smart, great guy. We were really good friends. He was part of our leadership team as college students. And he came and he said, you know, I don't agree with um, your stance on, on women's ability to do more than, you know, what we're used to them doing. So, okay, that's cool. Um, and I said, I, I don't know if I did it in response to his thing, but I said, let's talk about it, let's study it. And so I wrote up, like, I don't know, pages of notes on Bible scripture and all that stuff to present to him and say, Here, here's why I'm, we're doing what we're doing as, as this leadership of this ministry. And so, again, in my, my youthful ministry arrogance, here's what I expected to happen. He would read it, and this light would come down from heaven, and angels would sing, and he would say, of course, Dean is right. I was reading all these passages wrong, and Dean is completely right, and women can do this. It's not what he said. <laughs> I will never forget this. It changed my life. He came down and sat down in the chair right in front of my desk in my office. He said, I read your, I read your document. He said, I don't agree with it. <laughs> I don't agree with anything. He said, but it doesn't matter. Because I completely agree with you on the mission that we're trying to carry out here in Texas Tech University and Lubbock Christian. So my girlfriend will not be up there doing it. Now his wife, I get to do their wedding. She won't get up and do it. But she will submit to the fact that this is an environment where the leadership has discerned it and said other women can. I thought, oh my gosh, you could submit to a leadership decision that is more... Um, open and free than you would do, you can say, okay, I'm not going to do it. They're not forcing me to do it. That would be the thing I have to stand up against. But he would say, look, I'm not going to choose to do that. And my soon-to-be wife is not going to do it. But I trust our leadership. And I submit to it. I'm like, oh my gosh, is that how it works? Did you know our, our shepherds are going to discern things on what Paul calls disputable matters or opinions, depending on your translation. And here's what we get to do in a Christian community. We get to submit to them. And that doesn't mean you have to do it. It just means in this body, corporately and collectively, somebody's got to make a call. Can we submit to them? 
Now, you might go and talk to them and say, I have a different view. They may share with you passages, and you might say, I disagree. But can we practice the heart of West that says, here's how we have unity. Anybody has to have, any body, any community, any group has to have someone that will make the call on things that are disputable in opinion. Now, we can fight about what's disputable in opinions. But again, I would go back to the early creeds, and I would keep it very close to 1 Corinthians 15 and all that kind of stuff, right? If our shepherds go around and say, that was just a myth that Jesus was raised from the dead, let's revolt and run. They're not going to say that. I'm just playing. Do you hear me? There is a beautiful unity that happens when we can submit to our leadership in a local body. It becomes beautiful. And nobody has to ultimately agree. We can speak the truth and trust and love. We can withhold our hand and our tongues when we uh, are called by God to do it. So let's end with this because we're going a little bit long. A couple things from Bonhoeffer and we'll end. First of all, he says, this comes out of a heart that we can trust of service and love. Genuine spiritual authority, he says, is to be found only where the ministry, all the stuff we just talked about before, the ministry of hearing and helping and bearing with each other and proclaiming is carried out. Let me say that again. It's easy to submit to leaders who are hearing, listening, helping, bearing with each other, and proclaiming the word of God. That's what we get to do. And he says, I'll end with this. This is so important in our day and age. He said, we have created part of the problem because we've made leadership by personality. Again, he wrote this 50, 60 years ago, right? Not principles of faith. The desire we so often hear, he says, expressed today, are for spiritual figures, godly men or women, authoritative personalities. And it springs frequently enough from a spiritually sick need for the admiration of human beings for the establishment of visible human authority because the genuine authority of service appears to be so unimpressive. Wow. He says, watch out for following somebody just because they're fun and cool and impressive and visible instead of the ones that will put the towel around their waist and serve. Maybe we can learn from this guy who's already gone on to be with Jesus. Father God, I want to pray and just thank you one more time, I thank you for bringing this topic up. I love um, when I get a chance to submit to a study that's like guided by your church because it takes me to places I, I don't know if I would have gone there. Father, how timely this is in a world of conflict and tension and revolt against authority. Father, to give us this beautiful picture of both humble submission and very bold proclamation of truth against broken authority in our world. And I pray a special prayer for our shepherds who have dedicated time and effort and service and sweat and tears and prayers and joy to serve this place. I beg you, God, give us the Holy Spirit's power to make their service a joy. Speaking the truth to them, but submitting to their decisions in places of opinion and dispute and all of that. And Father, in all of that, displaying the unity that you have already given us in the Holy Spirit. We love you. We desperately need your leadership. And in the glorious name of Jesus, we pray.